It's good to see you tonight. It's good to be here in this midweek service to study God's Word. And uh, I do hope that it's a blessing to you. If you, if you read the chapter, uh, you, you realize there's a lot of different things in here. This is not necessarily thematic like what we've been seeing. We've sort of had several chapters in a row where there's been kind of a, a one story where, where all the details are built around one event. Uh, we're moving around a little bit now, and we're closing in on the final week of Jesus' life on the earth. And so from this chapter all the way uh, up until the crucifixion in John chapter 19, that's the last week of Jesus' life. So John covers a lot of things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not in that last week of Jesus' life. So just jumping right into the study, we're going to move rather quickly because we've got 50 verses to cover tonight. In verse 1 it says, Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. Now you might read that and think, well, he was in Bethany, that's where he raised Lazarus. Why does it say when he came to Bethany? So just recap, at the end of the chapter, we notice that then from that day on, this is after Jesus raised Lazarus, that they began to plot his death. And so it says, Therefore Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from that country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. So we don't know exactly how long Jesus was at Ephraim, but, but after he had raised Lazarus from the dead, that got him a lot of attention, and they started to plot his death because he had raised Lazarus from the dead. That's strange to me. But you have to look at it from their perspective. These men are power hungry. They are prideful. They do not want their position taken away. They want Jesus stopped. And now that he's raised someone from the dead, they understand there's going to be a following and it's going to be hard to stop. So they begin to plot Jesus' death. So he goes to this place, Ephraim, and this is our map. I hate that Justin's not here to see this beautiful map that he's always talking about. But I'm going to blow this up on the right side of the screen for a moment because this particular region down here is the region of Judea. And Ephraim is north of Jerusalem, whereas Bethany is just southeast of Jerusalem. So these two places aren't that far apart. But this is where Lazarus and where Mary and Martha live. And Jesus raises Lazarus and leaves here and goes to Ephraim up north of Jerusalem for a time. And then it says about six days before the Passover, he makes his way back down from Ephraim back to Bethany. So there's our geography lesson, or at least a little bit of a synopsis of the geography for the night. We're not going to move around much more than that because uh, most of this is going to be around this area. So just recapping here, it says six days before the Passover... So this is six days before they go into the city and they have the Passover feast and Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper and all those things. This is six days before that day. Jesus comes to Bethany where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he'd raised from the dead. And it says, there they made him a supper and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. So this is a little bit different because... It, uh, in time past, he was actually in Martha's house. And you might remember that from Luke chapter 10 where Mary was sitting at his feet and Martha was running around doing her thing. Well, they're actually not in Martha's house right now. They're in Simon's house. And we learn this in the book of Matthew, Matthew 26, that they're in Simon's house. Now, who that Simon is, there's a lot of conjecture about that, whether it was uh, Simon 
uh, Judas's dad or whether it was Simon the Pharisee that we read about in the book of Luke. Uh, but what we do know is this, it was Simon the leper. So it was somebody that Jesus had obviously cleansed because if he had leprosy, no one's going to be in his house. So this is somebody Jesus cleansed. Now it doesn't record for us the healing of Simon the leper. It never tells us that particular story, at least it doesn't identify him if that story's in the Gospels. He could have just been one of the lepers and just wasn't named in the other Gospels, but here we're getting those details. So that's where they're at, and I just think that's interesting that Martha is in someone else's house, and what's she doing? The same thing Martha always does, serve people. And so she's serving the Lord. And here's Lazarus. And you got to think about this. This is several days after Lazarus has come back from the dead. And I'm just thinking, if I'm in the house with him, every now and again, I'm just looking over at him and going, like, wow, you know, this is amazing. Well, Lazarus kind of became a spectacle. And we're going to see that. People wanted to see Lazarus. So they're in this house. They're eating supper. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Let's just talk about verse 3 for a moment. I find this very interesting because Mary is always around Jesus' feet. She sits at his feet at one point. In the last chapter, we just read that she falls down at his feet, and now she is here anointing Jesus' feet and wiping it with her hair. Now, ladies, can you imagine wiping someone's feet with your hair? Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. It would take a great deal of humility to do what she's doing. Strange. To us, it'd be very strange. It was strange to them. But understand something. Mary is worshiping Jesus. She's giving him what she can. And we read this story in the other Gospels, and it doesn't tell us it's Mary, but we know it's Mary. Because John tells us it was Mary. But we just read about this in, in the other Gospels. And we see the attitude of the people as they're watching her wash Jesus or anoint his feet with this oil. And then do this with her hair. So it says a pound of ointment. Now that's not a, a pound like our pound. It was, it was a 12-ounce pound is how they measured that. That's a lot of ointment. A lot of ointment. And it was costly. And they recognized it was costly. And one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, that sounds logical, doesn't it? Unless you're Judas Iscariot, of course. And we wouldn't know his intentions had John not told us. But it says this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. So, you know, there's something about Judas here. Judas successfully hid the darkness in his heart from all of the people he ran around with except Jesus. I want you to think about that. When they're around the table and Jesus tells them, one of you is going to betray me, nobody goes, I bet it's Judas. Nobody said that. They all said, is it I, Lord? You know why? Because Judas was real good at playing the hypocrite. He was real good at keeping the darkness inside of his heart, inside his heart, instead of on the outside. They didn't know, but Jesus did. And I guess later John did, because he found out too, that the whole time Judas is the treasure, what's he doing? Taking the money. Taking the money. So what's he doing here? Does he care about the poor? No. He says he didn't care about the poor. He just wanted to fill the money box up so he could take some more money out of it. 
But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. And there's a couple of different views on this phrase in verse 7 about she's kept this for the day of my burial. That he's just pointing out what's going to happen. That's one view. The other view is, is that, well, she just used part of that ointment. And then when they went to take that to the grave, you remember they went out there with spices and things that she took the rest of it out there. It doesn't really matter. What we do know is this. Jesus recognizes her sacrifice and says, you leave her alone. She's doing something for me. And he says, the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Some have looked at this as though Jesus is neglecting to care for the poor. That's not at all what he means. In fact, we get this cleared up in Mark's account of this, where he says, for you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good. So Mark adds this line in there that helps clarify what Jesus is actually saying is, look, I'm leaving. I'm leaving. You have a very limited time with me. But poor people, you can do something for them any day. But I'm leaving. And she's doing this for me. Now we might look at that and say, well, that's kind of self-centered. We're talking about God here. Okay? We're talking about God. We're not talking about some man saying, well, it's more important to give me something to the poor. Jesus has all understanding, all wisdom. He understands what's going on here. And there's a great lesson in this that we're not going to take time to talk about tonight in Mary anointing his feet, because we'll pick that up, Lord willing, when we talk through some of the other Gospels, because the story is much bigger in those Gospels with the more details. Okay, so we're, we're shifting gears here. Now, now, a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, talking about Jesus, that's he there. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. You know, I get that. I'm sure you get that too. If, somebody, if you heard somebody was raised from the dead, you want to see him too, wouldn't you? But this tells us why they're there. They're not just there because Jesus is there. They heard Jesus was there, but they want to go see Lazarus. Because it's not every day that somebody's been dead for four days and he comes back, right? Okay, there's no days that that happened, in fact. So they want to see this. But listen to verse 10. This, this is what blows my mind. But the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also. Because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. How hard-hearted do you have to be to know someone was raised from the dead... And you hate Jesus so much, you're willing to put this guy that just died back to death. Friends, this is what happens with power. It corrupts. With greed, it corrupts. It's what happens. And we see this as a, as a, as a, a, a theme through the Old Testament. Look at all of the kings in Israel and Judah. The majority of them were wicked. When men get power, men go crazy. These men have power. They want to keep their power that's what's going on here. And they're drunk with power. What I mean they're drunk with power is they're irrational. Let's put Jesus to death. He raised him from the dead. In fact, let's put the, to death the guy that Jesus raised from the dead. Because people are believing in him. And yet they know that only God can raise someone from the dead. Do you see the wickedness of these men? They're blind. They're so blind. Because of their pride and because of their covetousness that they want to put to death Lazarus. The next day, 
it says a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. So Jesus is going toward Jerusalem now. He's going to go keep the feast. They knew this. In fact, in some of the other Gospels, they talked about it. They, they were plotting his death, and they said, well, we can't kill him at the feast because people will see it. There, there's too many people going to be there. And so this is a safe time for him to come in, or at least seemingly so. And so Jesus comes in, and now, why are all these people here shouting this? Why? They said, well, because it's Jesus. Well, actually, John gives us another detail here in a moment. Let's keep reading. It says, Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's coat. Now, this is a, a fulfillment of prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. And it says, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that he had done these things to him. So, Jesus comes in riding on the donkey, they're shouting, and the disciples are there with him. They don't recognize this being a fulfillment of prophecy, but later they do. That's what he's saying. Later on, they figured out, oh, that was, that was a f another fulfillment of prophecy. So again, why were these people there? Why were they doing this? So it says in verse 17, Therefore the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised from the dead bore witness. For this reason, for this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. Do you think Lazarus' resurrection was important? It was Lazarus' resurrection that led to many people believing in Jesus. But not only that, it also led to the fulfillment of the prophecy when he was coming in on the donkey and people were shouting, Hosanna. All of that was all, all the way back to Lazarus being resurrected. And that's why the people were there. When they heard this sign was done, they knew this was their king. See? They knew it was their king. We didn't go back far enough. The king of Israel. I mean, think about it. Who would you want to rule over you? This guy can raise people from the dead. That's the one we want to follow. Why? Because everybody's afraid of death. You think about having an army. You're going to go in and revolt and fight against this one? This guy can raise people from the dead. This is a big deal to them. But you know it doesn't last. <laughs> it doesn't last. Verse 19 says, The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. When they saw the people had put the branches, the palm trees and all that, and they'd lined the street, and they were shouting, Jesus, uh, shouting praises to Jesus, the Pharisees said, You know what? We're wasting our time. We are wasting our time. We're not, we're not going to stop this. The whole world's gone after him. Obviously, that's hyperbole, but... But you see, where they're, they're observing this. They're seeing what's going on. And so now it says there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. And I'm just going to tell you, I, I believe that's talking about proselyted Greeks that were, that were brought into the nation of Israel. They were Jewish by uh, co conversion. They weren't born Jews, but they converted as Jews. That's why they're there at the feast. They're coming to observe the Passover. And then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and said, asked him, rather, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Sounds a lot like the first chapter, doesn't it? So uh, here we go again. So these guys go to Jesus together. They say, Hey, these Greeks are looking for you. And Jesus answers them this way. He says, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. 
You think they knew what that meant? They didn't have a clue. They don't know. He says to them, most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. This is probably one of those times when they're like, here he goes again. <laughs> Here's another parable, another metaphor, another simile. What, what's going on here? Do you know what Jesus is talking about here? I mean, it's a very simple analogy. He's saying, I'm going to die. And I'm going to be planted in the ground. And when I come out, I'm going to bear much fruit. He's telling them it's necessary. What's about to happen is necessary. Just like you can't have a harvest unless you plant the wheat in the ground and the wheat seed dies. I've got to be planted and die so that much fruit comes out. He says, he who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. I'm glad that John records Jesus qualifying these words in this world. Because a lot of times people read this, hate your life, that's insanity. No, hate your life in this world. He's saying, don't be attached to this life. Don't be attached to materialism. Don't be attached to the here and now, but hate your life in that way. Deny yourself of that life and lose your life for my sake and you'll find it. You'll gain eternal life. He says, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. What's Jesus telling us here? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's what he's saying. And then he says this in verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? And then he says, but for this purpose... I came to this hour. You know, he's preparing them for some things here. But I think every one of us, if we knew our death was imminent, that'd probably be our prayer, wouldn't it? Father, save me from this hour. Jesus says, is that what I should pray? Should I ask the Father to stop what's going to happen? That's why I'm here. I'm here for that. And so... When you see this, you might think, well, in Gethsemane, he said, let this cup pass from me. Did he say that for his sake? Or did he also say that for our sake? For our understanding. To understand that it was the will of the Father. Now, don't misunderstand me. I believe Jesus' prayer, his cries were genuine. But he knew what the will of God was. He knew why he was here. And he understood that. He understood, if this is the will of God, I'm doing it. It's the will of the Father. And then he ends this by saying, Father, glorify your name. I want to back up for just a moment. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And then he says, Father, glorify your name. He understands, doesn't he? God is going to be glorified when Jesus is planted. God is going to be glorified when Jesus is offered up. Jesus is going to be glorified because the Father's going to glorify him for doing those very things. You know what God said? What the Father said in response? He said, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Sounds a lot like Exodus, doesn't it? You remember when they wanted to talk to God and God talked to them and they said, let's not talk to God anymore. You talk to God. They didn't like how it sounded. It scared them. 
So some people, they heard what was said here and they identified that as that sounded like thunder. And some people said, no, he was talking to an angel. And Jesus said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. He said, the father wasn't telling me what I need to hear. He was telling you what you need to hear and approving of me. Because Jesus spoke to the Father and the Father answered in their presence. Now some of them obviously didn't hear it. They didn't hear the, the words. Uh, they didn't know what it was. But Jesus said it was for your sake. And then Jesus begins to talk about what's going to be accomplished. And he says this, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Now this has been a very puzzling phrase for a lot of people. The ruler of this world. Because we go, well, God's obviously the ruler of this world. I mean, and Jesus actually says, after he's resurrected, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. So who is this ruler of this world? Well, it's the devil. That's who it is. You say, whoa, 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 how's the devil the ruler of this world? Well, that's actually, this phrase is used two other times in the book of John. John chapter 14, verse 30, jumping ahead just a little bit. He says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. Now listen, and he has nothing in me. Well, that's definitely not God, is it? He has nothing in me. The ruler of this world is coming. What's he talking about? I'll tell you what, he's talking about the fulfillment of Genesis chapter 3. That the serpent, the seed of the serpent, would strike the heel of the seed of the woman. Because it was Satan that caused Jesus' death. And so that's what he's pointing out. The ruler of this world is coming. John 16, 11, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So he uses that phrase again. Well, what does he mean, the ruler of this world? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So if you think about the work of Satan, the way Satan works is he deceives the hearts of men. He blinds their eyes to the truth. And how do they walk once he does that? In disobedience to God. That's all he's talking about there. If you think about Satan, his influence is pervasive in the world. And when he uses the word world, I believe he's talking about those that are of the world. Those that are the seed of the devil. Those that follow the devil. He calls them the sons of disobedience. In another uh, passage, and I think it's chapter 5, he calls them the sons of wrath. Why? Because they follow after the devil. He is the God of this world. It's even used God of this world, which we'll look at in just a moment. But Satan truly is the prince of this world. Those that are of this world, he rules over them. He reigns over their hearts. That's why they live the way they do. He says it's a spirit that works in them. A spirit. And Jesus says this after that. He says, I, and I, if I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This he said signifying what death he would die. The people answered him, We have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So understand this is John clarifying. Uh, Jesus didn't say this to the crowd. They don't understand what he means when he says I'll be lifted up. They probably think he's going to be lifted up because he's always telling them I came down from the Father. They may think, well, he's saying he's going to be lifted up. And they're going, well, wait a minute. The, 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 the prophecies say this, that, this, that the Messiah is going to be around forever. So where are you going? <laughs> How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Well, who's the Son of Man? 
Well, we know what he's talking about. Why? Because John clarifies it. I mean, if I read that, the, that I'll be lifted up from the earth, I would probably be thinking about his ascension or maybe his resurrection. But it says, no, he's talking about the death that he would die. And we actually see this in other places in this particular letter as well. In John chapter 3, 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is one of the more puzzling typologies that I think we see in Scripture. Because God said, don't make any bronze uh, statues or any idols, but yet they did when the serpents were biting people and they were dying from that. Why did they do that? Well, that was God's plan. And that was a type of Jesus. Everybody, when they put that serpent up on the pole, everybody that had been bitten by the vipers came and they looked upon that bronze serpent and what happened? They were healed. That's the analogy he's making here. I'm going to be lifted up and all men are going to look on me. They're going to see me. And whoever believes in me will not perish but have everlasting life. But that's the idea of being lifted up there. In John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who has sent him, or sent me rather, draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. This verse is used over and over to prove predestination. That's not what Jesus is talking about, and we'll clear that up in a minute. Remember, let's let the Bible interpret itself. Let's let the Bible tell us what the Bible's saying. So when Jesus says that the Father will draw all men to him, what was he talking about? John 8, 28, then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I'm he and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. If we took all four of those readings we just did, we understand Jesus is going to be lifted up on the cross. It's going to draw all men to him, not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. And that's the Father drawing them to Jesus Christ. They believe on him because he is lifted up. Going back, verse 35. Then Jesus said to them, a little while longer, the light is with you. Now just back up for a moment and think back to John chapter 1. In him was life, and the light, the life rather, was the light of men. Jesus said in John 8 and 12, I am the light of the world. We read that in chapter 10 as well, didn't we? We read about that over and over. Jesus is the light, and here's what Jesus says to him. A little while longer, the light is with you. Me. That's who he's talking about. He's saying, I I'm going to be with you a little longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. So let's remember this right here. He who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. Why? Because he can't see. Okay? Hold on to that thought. We're coming back to that here in a moment. He says, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. Here he goes again. <laughs> he disappears. He says all this and disappears. What's he talking about? But although he had done many signs before them, they did not believe in him. Why? That the word of the prophet, of the word of Isaiah, rather the prophet, might be fulfilled. Which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This, you remember reading this in Romans 10 as well, don't you? 
It says, therefore, they could not believe because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. That was from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9, where you remember Isaiah saw this vision of God. He saw the throne of God. And what does it say he was talking about? Speaking of him, him who? Of Jesus Christ. And what happened when Jesus came? He shone the light. But you know what? Some people didn't see the light. They were blind. That's what it says. He has blinded their eyes. Now, there's a lot of different ideas about this verse. I'd encourage you, if you want to go look at commentaries, you can read five and have five different views of of verse 40. Some say that's talking about God. God blinded their eyes. Some say, well, that's the devil. Well, Let's just think of it this way. For one thing, it is God blinding their eyes. In another way, it's them themselves blinding their eyes because we see that in Matthew chapter 13. But the way God blinded their eyes was not through, I blinded them, like what you see in Sodom and Gomorrah where the men are coming against the house and the angels blind them. He's talking about spiritually blind. And it goes back to when they asked Jesus, why do you speak in parables? And what was the same answer? This right here. Same answer. They didn't understand is what he's saying. They didn't understand. Didn't understand what? What Jesus was doing and who Jesus was. Well, why is it that people have hard hearts? Because of sin. Well, who caused them to sin? Well, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. That's what we're talking about, right? Whose minds the God of this age has blinded. Who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Imagine Jesus says, I'm shining the light so you can see. And the Father says, I'm blinding your eyes so you cannot. That doesn't really sound like they're working together, does it? It wasn't that God was directly blinding them. Jesus gave his messages in such a way that only people who had a true desire for truth could understand and hear them. That's what was going on there. But why were they blind to begin with? Because the God of this age blinded them. The ruler of the darkness of this world blinded them because of sin. That's why, because of sin. Nevertheless, okay, that word means something, right? Nevertheless, what is that in connection with? This right here. Even though people didn't believe because of the signs, even though people were blind because of what was happening there, it says, nevertheless... Even among the rulers, many believed on him. So many did not. They were blind. But even among the rulers, many did. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. Lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. I'll tell you, they made a terrible exchange. This sounds just like John chapter 9, doesn't it? Where the blind man was healed. The one blind from his birth and his parents. They asked them, How did this happen? And they wouldn't answer. Why wouldn't they answer? They didn't want to be put out of the synagogue. You know what Jesus said in John 10? I am the door. If a man wants to enter in, he enters in by me. You know what they don't understand? These men are not the door. They're not the door. They can put you out of the synagogue. They can't separate you from God. You're rejecting the door and accepting the Pharisees. But they didn't know that. Even though they believed on Jesus... The pressure of being put out of their social group, their familiarity, their traditions, it was heavier for them on their hearts. So they did not confess that they believed in Jesus. Why? 
because they'd rather have the praise of men than the praise of God? It's a good question for ourselves. Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Here's all these people, and they're wrestling, right? When did Jesus get there again? I don't know. (laughs) He's back, though. These people are wrestling with their faith, wrestling of whether or not they did or didn't believe in Jesus, whether they ought to speak or not speak about Jesus. And Jesus cries out. He gets their attention. And he says, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in who? The Father. And he who sees me sees who? The Father. I've come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Now here's another confusing, confusing thing. Because we've seen kind of back and forth, we've seen Jesus say, I'm not judging the world. Then he said, I am judging the world. Then he says, judgment is coming to the world because the ruler of this world is judged. We're seeing a whole lot here, but understand Jesus is about to make a point. He's saying, I myself am not making the judgment. That's what he's saying. That wasn't my purpose. I didn't come in here to judge the world. I came to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I've spoken will judge him in the last day. That's why Jesus said, I'm not judging. Why? Because what I'm speaking is what? For what I have spoken is from who? Not of my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. What he's telling them is this. If you want to reject me, you can, and I won't judge you, but the Father will. And he'll judge you based on what I tell you. Because I'm telling you what he told me to tell you. And I know in verse 50 that his commandment is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. You hear us up all the time telling you, study your Bible. Right? Study your Bible. Why? Because it's the standard. It is the standard. No man in this building is the door. We can't save you. We can't condemn you, but Jesus is the door. And you enter in how? Through him. And everything that he said and everything that he commissioned his apostles to say was given to him by the Father. And it's the authoritative word that will judge us on the day of judgment. And we better know what it says. We better know what it says. Because one of the books will be open. And one of those is the one we're reading from. And we'll be judged out of that book. Because it is the authority. In Jesus is life, and without him is no life at all. He is the light to life. He is the light to truth. He is the only light in this world. And we can seek to save our life. We can try to preserve our life. We can focus our life right here, right now, in this life. And at the end, if that's where we're at, we're going to come up empty. We have nothing to show. Whoever seeks to save their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for the sake of Christ will find it. Friends, tonight, if you've not submitted yourself to Jesus Christ, if you've not obeyed his gospel and come to him, if you have not been drawn to him and to his cross, tonight is the night to do that. Come to him, and he will save you. He will give you eternal life. He will write your name in the book of life. He will give you an inheritance in heaven with him. And friends, tonight, if you've strayed away from him, will come back because he is the only way. 
We offer the invitation at this time. Come have a seat on the front. Let us help you as we stand and we sing.